We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 138 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. With me, once again, Scott the Velvet Glove and Paul the Twelfth Man. Welcome aboard, gentlemen. Hi. <laughs> G'day, Trevor. How was your trip? It was good. At some stage, we really need to nail down these intros and just, you know, we should spend a minute beforehand just get, working out who's going to say something <laughs> first and who's going to say something second. But uh, I try to de- defer to my superiors. Y- yeah, you're using hand actions to, Scott couldn't see to invite Scott and uh, we don't have the video on. <laughs> <laughs> We're all good, dear listener. And I had a fantastic trip and um, hi, yeah, more on that at another time, but it was really, really good. So, um, gentlemen... Much happened while I was away in Australia. It was a quiet time. Without you, um, Fist, it was pretty subdued, I would say. Mm. Yeah. I just got the impression that things were quiet, <laughs> news-wise, in the last few weeks. It, it was pretty quiet. I mean, it, it was pretty quiet. They're, they're doing their best to try and make Batman sound really interesting, but we shall see where that goes on Saturday. And then you've also got the uh, South Australian election also on Saturday. So, What's Batman? Yeah, we what, shall see. Batman, the uh, by-election that was you know, created by David Feeney having to resign because of citizenship issues right. in Melbourne. Okay. Is it, is and the, yeah. big thing is, the big thing is because it's a battle between the Greens and the Labor Party, yeah. so it uh, could potentially end up being a Green seat after Saturday. Hmm. Yes, but Labor are fielding a pretty substantial candidate in the form of Jed Carney. Carney, is it? How do you pronounce her name? Jed Carney. Yeah, Jed, yeah. Jed Carney. She's a... Ex-ACTU. She, she's ex-ACTU president and that sort of thing, and I despise that sort of movement on the Labor side where you go up up through the union ranks and then you just get parachuted in as a, as a member of a party. That's a bit harsh. Uh, I mean, true. She's, <laughs> she's a substantial person. She's, you know, she started out I as a nurse. I know that. Worked as a nurse, you know, became involved in the union movement and worked her way up. I, th- I think she's got some runs on the board myself. but And I've heard her speak and I find her to be a pretty substantial person. But anyway. Okay, so she's a bit different I've to the no, normal. I've no doubt that she's substantial. I've no doubt she's a substantial individual and that sort of stuff. I just can't stand the whole get him in, breed him up through the unions and then shove him into Parliament. That's all. At least she's had a career outside of yeah. union movement because in doing the um, secular index, I just found that with a lot of the, in particular, Labor senators, you would Google their name and there was nothing on them other than the most briefest little article that they'd worked in some union and... Mm-hmm stood for the party in some Senate seat, and there was absolutely nothing else about them that they'd done. So mm. um, at least, yeah, if she's had a career as a nurse, then that's yeah. good. Mm. Well, I mean, has the Greens candidate done anything more substantial than that? Apparently there, I was, don't a, know. God, there was a little I bit don't of know. rivalry. She, she's, a, yeah, she, she's a social worker who lived in the seat, and I, I, I don't know. We shall find out. But, I, but if you want a prediction, I think that the Labor Party will win the seat, um, but it'll be a uh, nail-biter. Hmm. Uh, if you hear some cries and screams in the background, it's, it's, it's my wife playing a card game yeah. and she's very vocal. It's not it, domestic violence. No, it's like not that. anything more, <laughs> you know, potentially more interesting than that either. The, the, the cries of delight are, uh, oh. are completely um, to do with the card game. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's the 14th of March 2018. On this day, Stephen Hawking passed away. And yes, it was very sad, wasn't it? You I said it we was should... yesterday, wasn't it? It was the 13th. Oh, was it? Passed away, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm. Well, it hit, our, it hit our newspapers today, so... Oh, there yeah. you go, yeah. Um, yeah. Other than thoughts and prayers, any other comments to make, Jimmy? Yes, apparently the, the date is kind of um, interesting because, you know, it's purely by chance, obviously, but mm. it, uh, I heard a physicist talking on, I th- on the news this afternoon... And he said the thirteenth of the third. It's something about the numbers. It's, but it's the American order. I think three thirteen, 
18. 18 is something to do with pi or something like that. You know, the, that special mathematical number that uh, is so f- you know, the physicists are so fond of. Okay. I hadn't heard that. And he was born, oh, okay. and he was born something like the day or the day after Galileo died or something. Okay. Well, I so had, he has an interesting. We really birthday. need to research this better before we podcast it. But yes. I, the rumor I heard was he died on the date of Einstein's birthday. But that's oh, just I didn't know that. Relayed by somebody. I don't know if it's true or not. Dear dear listener, don't rely on that information in any trivia contest that you may be in in future. <laughs> All right. Topics. Previously, dear listener, we've spoken about exclusion zones around abortion clinics, fertility clinics, and there was one in Canberra, and Canberra passed a law in the ACT to stop protesting by Christian groups within, you know, several hundred metres of fertility clinics. And a couple of old characters who used to be part of the protest movement with placards and etc decided that they would just be in the vicinity doing silent prayer. And we mentioned that they'd been charged with a breach of that act. And there was no outward signs that they were doing anything other than one was holding a pair of rosary beads, but they were otherwise silently praying. And they'd been charged. And I thought at the time, I don't know if that one's going to stick. And the result has come through. And... It didn't. So uh, they've been cleared of any offence for what they were doing. Um, the law prohibits protest by any means in the exclusion zone. Magistrate Glenn Theaxton said they simply do not stand out as participating in any extraordinary activity. They do not even gather, his decision stated. So he dismissed the charges. I think that's probably fair enough. Like if somebody's just going to silently pray, then... I don't think we should be interfering with that. No. The only thing I would say is um, imagine if they decide that um, they've found a convenient loophole in the law and they decide to do it en masse and uh, have, say, you know, however many supporters that feel the same as they do to go and sit in front of the clinic oh. and pray or I, I think stand the, in front of I the clinic. I think at that point they, they would then stand out as participating in an extraordinary activity. Mm. So just a couple of old men sitting on a park bench or a, you know, a, a bus station bench is not ex- extraordinary, but a group of 20 people sort of blocking a pathway, that would be extraordinary. Mm. So I think there's the difference. Mm. There we go. So, Scott, no yeah, complaints I on from I didn't you. have a... No, I didn't have a problem with the magistrate's ruling. It's yeah. um, he did he did mention the rosary beads, but um, even that, you know, they are just a prop for Catholics. So you know, it's you're stuck with them. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think our um, uh, you know, women visiting a fertility clinic will be robust enough, or need to be, to walk past an old man praying silently. Mm. Yeah, they can always exactly. carry yeah. a lucky rabbit's foot with them while they're walking. Yes. Into the place or something. Yeah. To protect them from the rosary beads. Yeah. Um, oh, you agree with that, do you? No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, maybe the Satanists could just declare that they're going to be silently casting spells on Christians in the vicinity and if one or two of them were wandering around, but it'd be hard to spot. Um, gentlemen, the Trans-Pacific Partnership... The TPP. Scott, I was, in the limited time I had, I was, I was trying to find the episode where we gave a bit of an explanation of the TPP and what was bad about it. Mm. And we have done dozens of episodes on the TPP, going back to episode 15 or 16 back then. Wow. At, at that point, we were talking about TPP relentlessly and... In episode 20, we said something like, it wouldn't be a podcast if we weren't talking about the TPP. Mm. It's back on the agenda. It just refuses to die. And, and what was your general assessment of it <clears throat> back in episode 15 to 20? It's a terrible document that we should have nothing to do with. Mm. And uh, the, the, the thing about it is that 
nothing, there's no good coming out of this. So um, studies done by... Uh, I... Go ahead, well, Scott. I tend, to disagree, I tend to disagree with you because I do think that uh, if you liberalise trade and that type of thing, you mm. do end up with a overall lift in economic activity. However, my biggest complaint against the TPP is the ISDS clause that's in there. Mm. It does allow... It does allow those bastard corporations to sue us mm. outside of court, and you've only got one bite at the cherry. And if you get if you stuff up, you you've got to live with the ruling. I, I think that's wrong. And, the, and at least with the courts, at least with the courts, if you've got appeals mm. that can go on. Anyway. And the, mm. the 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 example was the plain packaging tobacco plain packaging case, wasn't it? Correct. The, the, the Philip Morris case. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's what it was. It, it was it was brought by uh, Philip Morris in the in uh, Hong Kong. And they were they were suing us in in an ISDS case because we had a we had a free trade agreement with Hong Kong, and they've gone through and they've they've gone you know effectively jurisdiction they, shopping. They they transferred their company to an overseas country that had a uh, which had an agreement with Australia which contained one of these clauses, mm. and effectively they say you. The, the signatories to this agreement agree not to do things that are going to breach the trading rights of our citizen companies. And if you do, then the matter gets referred to this arbitration tribunal, which is just not a proper court. It's just a, a shady arbitration uh, thing that's run in a hotel room and um, it's binding. Yeah, it's not even done in a proper court. It does sound a bit shady, doesn't it? And it can cost you a lot of money to defend it. Mm. And uh, effectively, it it stops sovereign nations from passing laws that might interfere with the trading rights Mm. of private companies because the private company happens to be um, a member of of a country that you've done a trading deal with. So that's the ISDS clauses. Mm. And that's being used against Canada... So they wanted to pass laws to stop fracking and companies, you know, US companies with mineral exploration rights in Canada sued the Canadian government successfully to stop them from... Successfully? Yes, to stop them from fracking because that was going to interfere with their trading rights. And there was a free trial. Exactly. This is the danger of these things. And um, the other thing, Scott, is that the World Bank... Uh, has said that the benefits to Australia of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, would boost the Australian economy by 0.7% by the year 2030. So that's an annual boost of less than one-half of one-tenth of 1%. So when I said you get nothing yeah, I, out of I, it... I know it's, it's, only, I know it's, it's only small, but small. it's still an increase. Scott, one-half of one-tenth of 1% per still an increase. It's still an increase. And when you're talking about an economy the size of Australia and that type of thing, I do think that any increase is worthwhile. Scott, and, now, and a, you know, there Scott, are Scott, certainly arguments that are around the ISDS. You know, they shouldn't be a part of the agreement. Anyway, Scott, yeah, go it's on. It's not going to back an, down. An economic model that predicts an increase in growth of less than one-half of one-tenth of one percent per annum with the shadiness and the rubberiness of economic modelling, it would be of no surprise if it worked out to be zero or less than zero. I mean, what's the margin of error on an economic model? Um, it's you, probably one-half of one percent, yeah. Yeah, which is <laughs> so very arguable that yeah, I mean, it falls on the other side and it's it, actually it to very, our detriment. When you're that close to quite, zero... It is, it is quite arguable. Yeah. It is quite arguable. And I agree was, that it is arguable. Why was the Australian government so keen to sign up to it? Because it's great for business. Which business? Businesses who gain access to new markets and who don't care what happens to Australia. So if, if, you don't, if you're selling sugar to the United States, you don't care about tobacco packaging laws... You know, in the scheme of things, what's good for your industry and you don't care about the rest, that's effectively what happens. So short-sighted self-interest by large corporations who talk to the government 
So anyway, the TPP's back. Now, remember, Scott, language warning. Mm. Dear, dear listener, this episode does have a bit of a language warning generally, but a specific <laughs> one coming up. At some stage, I said to you that this goddamn TPP, it's a, it's a fucking zombie that refuses to Ooh. die. Do you remember me saying that? Uh... No. I do said that. Scott saying that, yes. Yeah. yeah. This, no. this article. Um, where are we? Back on. Uh, if you want to object, to listener, to this TPP, you can go on to GetUp and sign a petition, and I'll send a letter off to local member or somewhere. So do that. But the URL for the um, uh, for this link has in it zombie TPP contact blah blah blah. So even the GetUp people are talking about. The TPP is a zombie that just keeps popping out of the ground and you whack it over the head and before you know it, it's back up again. Impossible to kill. Anyway, that's about our 50th mention of the TPP in 138 episodes. <sighs> <laughs> no, doubt be, no doubt it'll be back again. Mm. So. It's going to be eventually overtaken by Donald Trump uh, for, for mentions and... Uh, he, of course, has come out with a statement imposing tariffs on steel and iron ore into the US, and that surprised a lot of his Republican colleagues who were not happy. But, you know, when you sleep with the devil, that's what happens. Steel and aluminium, I think. Steel, was... thank you. Mm. And not iron ore? Mm. I don't think so. No. I don't recall. No, not iron ore. Right. Steel and aluminium. Yeah. Apparently... Australia might be one of the few countries that gets an exemption. Mm. So Donald Trump tweeted. There is. Go on, Scott. There is some question. There is some question around what we've actually got to do to get that exemption. There was a suggestion that the Americans have asked for something in the military side of things to pay back this whole thing. So. It wouldn't surprise me if, at some stage over the next six months, the Royal Australian Navy goes on a freedom of a freedom of. Um, ah, that's a possibility. <laughs> freedom of, of freedom of operation, yeah. freedom of movement. Anyway, whatever it is in the South China Sea, that wouldn't surprise me. Mm. But let's hope it doesn't get that far. Anyway, it's clear what we've got to do, Scott. We've just got to bend over and touch your toes like we normally do. <laughs> that's really. <laughs> it's quite that's, a vision. That's, it's obvious. Well, we shall see. We shall see. We'll see what happens because, you know, Europe could take the Americans to the WTO yet and then we'll see where that goes. And, you know, it's also like the optics of it all. Like Trump lost one of his major economic advisors who walked out on off after the whole decision was brought down. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a mess. It, it is a mess and who knows where it'll end up. But just that we might get a special exemption. And his tweet was, spoke to PM Turnbull Malcolm of Australia. He is committed to having a very fair and reciprocal military and trade relationship, the US president wrote. Quote, working very quickly on a security agreement so we don't have to impose steel or aluminium tariffs on our ally, the great nation of Australia. Working on a security, I thought we've we've had a security agreement. We've had a security several, agreement since the nineteen forties. Yeah. Just when you get a special exemption and a compliment from Donald Trump, it's time to worry. I just I feel dirty after that. Ooh. Yeah. Well, you know, it makes me think that Fraser was right when he said that you know all the old treaties should have been torn up at the end of the Cold War. You know, if only he'd said these things when he was in power. That was one he came out with after he left? Well, that was after he'd left. But, you know, he, the, the Cold War came to an end after he'd left. So, yeah. you know. Okay. It's, mm-hmm. He came out with a lot of good stuff once he retired. It's hard to believe it was Absolutely. the same yeah. hard to believe it was the same guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. We have previously mentioned the Ellis defence. Paul, you're familiar with the Ellis defence? Uh, look, not in detail, but uh, it's, it's to do with... Um, the inability of an individual who was subjected to um, sexual abuse at the hands of Catholic priests, it um, was effectively prevented them from suing the Catholic Church as a, as a body mm. um, because they, they had devised some mechanism whereby the Catholic Church was not responsible for the actions of individual parishes or priests or something like that. Almost there. Effectively, they declared that that the Catholic 
church was was not was just an unincorporated association, Ooh. so it wasn't a legal entity as such that yes. could be sued. So that's um, the the main guts of the Ellis decision. So it was a case of trustees of the Roman Catholic Church of the Archdiocese of Sydney versus Ellis, and he had been an altar boy who was abused by a priest called Duggan, and uh, who was a Catholic priest, and Ellis commenced proceedings against Cardinal Pell as the current occupier of the position of Archbishop of Sydney, and he also sued the trustees of the Roman Catholic Church of the Archdiocese of Sydney, and he sued Duggan himself. And what the court said was that the trustees simply own property of the church. That's all they do. They don't operate church activities in any way. It's just a land-owning entity. So it had nothing to do with hiring or firing or conduct of priests. It was completely separate. And it said that the, the parish itself is really just an unincorporated association. So all you can do is sue the priest himself. And, of course, priests have no money. And this character died during the proceedings anyway. So it was essentially saying uh, a Catholic parish is not a legal entity. You can't sue it. So the background reasoning for telling you all that, dear listener, is that the magnificent Daniel Andrews government in Victoria (laughs) is closing that loophole. And I haven't seen the actual legislation to see how they're doing it, but... Presumably they're passing an act declaring somehow that parishes are legal entities capable of being sued. And there's also... Normally there's a time limit on suing people, but when it comes to abuse of sexual abuse, then the time limit doesn't exist in Victoria. So this will open up the opportunity for lots of abused Victorians to make a claim against the Catholic Church... You've got to hand it to the Daniel Andrews government for picking up different bits and pieces and passing law. Full credit to them, I say. Absolutely, he's done a he's done a brilliant job. You know, because it's the Ellis defence was nothing short of bloody disgusting. It mm. was appalling that they deployed it in the first place. Mm. And you know, so it's been pulled apart now. So I'm not sure if that means that. Um, Caps and all that sort of stuff have to uh, caps and whatnot on the compensation would be gone away with too, wouldn't they? Don't I don't know. think so. I think there is a cap of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's so. that's in the Melbourne that's in the Melbourne response. But what I'm saying is that because this Ellis defence has now been stripped away, mm. that would then leave the church laying bare to possible claims. So the mm. claims could be in excess of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, couldn't they? I, I don't thought know. So. That that figure I just mentioned was um, was um, came out in the recent. Uh, you know the um, actually the, the Catholic Church has been dragging their feet uh, in terms of signing up to the compensation scheme, mm. and somebody mentioned that in the parameters of that scheme, there's a limit of one hundred fifty thousand dollars per claimant. Actually, a bit further in this article that we've linked to, dear listener. Uh, Helen Last, Chief Executive of Advocacy Group In Good Faith, said the proposed legislation would allow her clients to go to court to get around the official redress schemes which were putting victims of religious institutions behind those who had suffered in government-run homes. So get around the official redress scheme seems to say that they probably go for bigger bigger numbers now. Mm, so Good for them. Mm. Mm. There we go. Good on you, Andrew's government, yet again showing the way. But not only that, it it really highlights the hypocrisy of an institution <coughs> that sets a, sets itself up as the you know the the, the arbiter of uh, human morality and mm. decency, mm. and yet when they're found out mm. as being responsible for widespread and you know. Uh, abuse over many, many years, probably mm. hundreds of years, of course, mm. realistically, they say, they, 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 they find a legal fiction 
to avoid actually uh, paying compensation. And when Ellis lost that case, they got a cost order against him as well. <laughs> Just to rub. Surely they me. wouldn't. Uh, sure, they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have proceeded on that, would they? I don't know. Somebody can look it up and find out. But they got a cost order against him, so. So I don't think the Ellis defence exists in other countries. I don't think they have this problem. But uh, okay. no, it doesn't. It doesn't because you know the Yanks. Are, the Yanks have been able to sue theirs for millions. You know. Mm. So there you go, dear listener. Good on you, Andrew's government. More on the Catholics. Uh, we've previously mentioned that the the Holy See gets a, a seat at uh, the United Nations. The Holy See? Yeah, S-double-P. And they get to sit in on all sorts of stuff. They don't get to vote, but they're there getting to make comments and they're inside. They get Why? to talk to people all the time. Good, good Why? Because they're a nation. Why are they even there? Yes. Uh, because they're a nation. Of, of sorts. The Vatican when, yeah, when it suits them, yeah. It's a nation, is it? Is it categorised as a nation? It is, yeah. It's, it's got a seat in the UN General Assembly, the whole lot. That's why it's got, you know, it's got, uh, you know, that's why we've got uh, ambassadors to and from the Holy See here in Australia. Mm. So anyway. It really it gives me the ear. It's we sure to do away with it. Anyway. Well, mate, we're talking at the United Nations. Last Friday, well, this one is it's an earlier article, but talks about on the 2nd of March at the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva, the Holy See opposed the fundamental human right to freedom from religion claiming that it is a patronising idea that goes beyond the mandate of UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief. The Holy See also argued that secularist ideologies that promote ideas that are not in line with religious wisdom and the sentiments of the greatest part of humanity will weaken the UN and lead to a state of irrelevance of the multilateral human rights system um, basically came out and said that there is no right to freedom from religion and of course in this article they point out uh, that's not quite right uh, article 18 actually says that you know, people have a right to freedom from religion it's quite clearly spelled out but there you go that's the they've got a lot of front haven't they yeah <laughs> You got it absolutely. My goodness! So you, we're, we're all obliged to believe their superstitious nonsense. Well, well no, of some kind, anyway. Well, yes, what a front. I think uh, I think we'll have to borrow one of Trevor's comments here and say the the gall of these people. Yeah, Ken won't like that. Yeah. No, that no, that. Anyway. So there you go. That's. That's two shots at the... Um, and that was uh, worth noting from the online publication Atheist Island. Yes. Two words that most people would never imagine would go together. Mm. Yeah. But there you no, go. and I did, like the, I did like the final lines here. To, the right to opt out of religion in all Irish schools is not new. It is a constitutional right, but has not been given practical effect because the state has given control of most of our schools to an organisation that does not respect the constitutional and human rights to freedom from religion. Mm. You know. There we go. Well, let's, uh, let's mm. just finish off our little um, bit on the Vatican with a bit of, with a bit of music. Processional, step into that small confessional. There, the guy who's got religion will tell you if your sin's original. If it is, try playing it safer. Drink the wine and chew the wafer. Two, four, six, eight. Time to transubstantiate. So get down on your knees, fiddle with your rosaries, bow your head with great respect, and genuflect, genuflect, genuflect. Make a cross on your abdomen when in Rome, do like a Roman Ave Maria. Gee, it's good to see you getting ecstatic and sort of dramatic and doing the Vatican rag. Pretty good. I like it. Tom Lear. It was very good, yeah. In the Vatican rag. Good on you, Tom. Speaking of politicians doing stuff, Fiona Patton, as um, she's in the sights of the ACL. Uh, she's, well, formerly Sex Party, now Reason Party. Again in Victoria, State Parliament. 
and she's apparently putting forward legislation to remove advancing religion as an automatic charitable purpose. Go, Fiona. Um, so, dear listener, if you wish to register as a charity, you need to be undertaking a charitable purpose, which could be feeding the poor or educating people or, you know, providing a hospital or something like that. But also one of the automatic sort of key criteria would simply be advancing religion. So that's considered a charitable purpose under Australian law and sex party, Fiona Patton, has put forward legislation to say that shouldn't be an automatic reason and by all means a church can apply to become a charity but they've got to demonstrate proper charitable work in order to qualify. Seems reasonable to me. Mm. It's perfectly reasonable. It's it's something that's long overdue and it should be done in the federal parliament too. Mm. So uh, just a comment here from the ACL Victorian director, Dan Flynn, who says, <laughs> why is Miss Patton very funny, trying it? to block the fountain that so much charity springs from? The promotion of religion is the promotion of doing good to others, helping the poor, building hospitals and schools. Mm. Well, if... You know, if you are doing those things, you will be a charity. But simply handing out Bibles to people is not uh, a charity. According to them, it is. Mm. According to our law, it is. So good on you, Fiona. School chaplains. So this is um, funded under a sort of a four-year funding arrangement, which is about to finish. Mm. And you would hope that it would just expire and disappear. You'd hope. But a group of Liberal politicians are lobbying hard within the party room to have it extended and to be made a permanent item in the budget with no expiration date and, for good measure, 25% more expensive. (laughs) Don't they see those numbers that you put forward of... A few episodes ago, where it said, um, you know, the amount that's paid is such and such per hour. The chappy gets twenty five percent of it. The three quarters of it goes to the scripture union. Oh, they don't care. They don't Perhaps care. they yeah. haven't been listening to the podcast of late. Oh, I don't think they do, but they don't care. They just, no, they're you know they're just they're just crazy nutters. Email them a copy of the podcast, yeah. Trevor. <laughs> this is where we need lobbying in the halls of parliament. They just mm. don't care. I mean, you know, census comes out and says we're less religious than ever, but so they want to spend more on religion than ever. Yeah, so let's boost funding to the most useless waste of taxpayers' money ever devised. Yeah, so they want to make it a permanent item in the agenda with, uh, in, you know, increased by 25% and then increased by the index after that. So... And one of the proponents of that is Queensland LNP MP Luke Howarth, who's recorded, who's recruited the support of at least 30 colleagues in a petition to Scott Morrison and the Education Minister Simon Birmingham. So we hadn't heard of him before. Never heard of him. And in the index, I had nothing on him. So he'll get an entry now and he's going to get down as a, as a one on the index because... Uh, we know Scott Morrison's a, a, a practicing Christian mm-hmm. um, of the um, evangelical evangelical persuasion. Actually, yeah. not evangelical exactly, but yeah, it's the um, Hillsong. Yeah, they're not exactly evangelical. Uh, there's another categorization for those. Um, it just eludes me. Pentecostal. Pentecostal. Exactly. Isn't it? Yes, right. it's Pentecostal. But mm. Simon Birmingham. Simon Birmingham is he a Christian? No, he's an atheist. Is he? Hang on. So why, yes. why has he been recruited into this scheme? Because he's the Minister for Education and that's who they're lobbying. They're lobbying the, the Minister for Education plus Scott Morrison as the Treasurer. And so that's sure what they're trying to do. They're trying to, they're trying to get the... You're right, Scott, because I've just looked up the IFVG Secular Index and we had Simon Birmingham as an atheist. So why would a, he allow himself to be... You know, well, included in that. Group. He's not. Yeah, they're presenting the petition to him because he's the education minister oh, trying to convince him, mm. and he's been very good in taking on the Catholic sector. So, 
he gets a six on the secular index of his efforts so far to try and move funding away from the Catholic sector to be more in line with Gonski-style recommendations. So, mm. yeah. I have to say Birmingham um, has struck me as one of the more intelligent and reasonable members of the government mm. overall. And he speaks very well. Absolutely is, mm. yeah. He, he, he does. He's, he strikes me as a, as a very intelligent, refined bloke. You know, he's really bang on the money as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, mm. So, dear listener, just a refresher on the chaplaincy program, you've got to be, even though you are banned from proselytising in any way in, in your work as a, as a chaplain... You're specifically not able to proselytise or convert people or invite them to religious goings-on. They're not supposed to proselytise. They're banned from it. But you cannot be a chaplain unless you are um, formally... You've been ordinated or commissioned by a recognised religious institution. Mm. So... Secular people, not allowed... To be chaplains. Not allowed. Banned from it. Can't be one. So the way it works is individual schools pick which religion they want their chaplain to be a member of and then recruit a person from that religion for the job. Interesting, isn't it? Even though they're not allowed to effectively conduct that religion. There seems to be what world are we living some kind in? of contradiction inherent in all of that, but I just can't quite put my finger on it. He was the guy from Catch-22, Yosarian, or whatever his name was. He'd, he'd love it. He'd just Anyway, so there's absolutely no reason why a chaplain needs to have religious qualifications if he's not allowed to promote religion. Okay? So there's no... The job has no religious requirement to it. So there's an article here, dear listener, which is quoting a guy called Luke Beck. He's Associate Professor of Constitutional Law at Monash University, specialising in religious freedom and separation of religion and government issues. He's a guy we've got to get on the podcast Mm. at some stage. And he's come out and said, well, if you don't actually... You know, some jobs... I mean, if a church is employing somebody to run a mass, well, obviously you have to employ a clergy person. But if you're employing somebody Mm. to be a chaplain who's not allowed to proselytise, then you cannot have a religious requirement under the anti-discrimination laws. That's interesting. Yeah. So he's saying that there's no genuine occupational requirement for a chaplain to be a member of any particular religion or to be religious at all. So uh, he's saying that's in breach of the various state laws for anti-discrimination and um, the state anti-discrimination commissions should do something about public schools breaching religious discrimination laws. If they don't, someone will eventually go to court and the school chaplains program will probably be ruled illegal. What a great... The sooner the, the better. Luke, where have you been all my life? Yes, just... Associate Professor Luke Beck. Get him on the show. Yeah, we're going to try. So, great. That's a, gr- that's a great um, breakthrough, potentially. Be... Yes. So anyway, we've got to talk to him and try and get some sort of test case underway mm. to... Take this on. Keep in mind, the federal government has twice been found. Um, yeah, Ron, to be Ron Williams acting. has taken them twice. Yeah, because yes. of the Ron way Williams, they yes. structured it. Yeah, and twice they've got they've um, refused to accept it and mm. found a, a, a way around it. Yes. So there we go, dear listener. Really, um, associate professor in constitutional law at Monash University reckons there's a very good reason why this. Chaplaincy program could be struck out. So, whoops, that sounded like Scott has disappeared from our Skype connection. Let me... Dear listener, we're just returning from a brief pause because the internet dropped out and we've got Scott now on a phone, so he might sound a bit scratchier than he normally does. But we were just finishing up (laughs) talking about Luke Beck and this uh, anti-discrimination challenge to the chaplaincy program 
And this is where we need an, a secular slash atheist legal group to sort of take on the the pro religious legal groups that the ACL is is um, creating. So atheist secular lawyers out there, please make contact with us and. Oh, it's, there was that one yeah, Dean. that made an amazing submission. Yeah, yes. so we've got to get people like Dean and Luke mm. and others um, together and then get some money from someone like the Rationalists who'd be prepared to challenge something like this and run a test case mm. and see what happens. Yeah, mm. be a good idea. So that's good. Uh, Absolutely. Good on you, Luke. Dear listener. Not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Just a quick article, dear listener, a recent one from the John Menadue blog talking about a comparison that was done between private schools and public schools and basically said that if the socioeconomic status is the same, then the results are the same. And if you are spending tens of thousands of dollars on private education, you're wasting your money. So don't do it, dear listener. My kids all went to yeah. public schools and got a great education. So if you kids... I was, um, I was very surprised by that. Like, you know, it just he went through it all and that sort of stuff and ranked it and there was absolutely no difference whatsoever. So it just, li- just exposes the lies of the church and the independent sector when they try and carry on like it's somehow better. Mm. If you're interested in the topic, dear listener, there's a book called Free Schools by David Gillespie. He's another Brisbane person. And he, the subtitle is How to Get a Great Education for Your Kids Without Spending a Fortune. And um, that's a good book if you are considering. If you've got kids and you're wondering how you're going to afford to educate them, he will explain how you choose a good public school. Yeah, look, I've, um, I've come across uh, commonly people have the perception that... Um, even if they they don't particularly want their children to get a religious indoctrination, that some of the church-run schools, for example, the uh, the Anglican church school system, there is the perception that the quality of the education is better there. So what they th- the parents think they're paying for is a better quality of education for their kids, not necessarily a religious education. Mm-hmm. So how does he challenge that perception? Well, when you look at the socioeconomic status of of groups of kids, then essentially they get the same result no matter what school they go to. So what's the determining factor? The area they live in? Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's the income of the parents. It's it's comparing apples with apples. So the, you know. It, it's taking... So if your kids went to, say, for example, Double Bay State High School, if there is one, hmm. they would get exactly the same... Or, or the the outcome f- for them yes. as individuals would be basically yep. the same as if they went to Knox Grammar or something Correct. like that. Correct. So, um, so, so, you know, sometimes these schools will get a better overall average because they just toss out the dysfunctional non-performing ah, kids that okay. that state schools have to accept. Yes, which they but, cannot but, just toss the yeah, kids out. Yeah, but when you look closely at it, you know, if a kid is capable of an OP1, he will get a half-decent mm. um, public school. He'll get an OP1, just as he would at a private school, or an OP5. Mm. You know, they'll get the same result no matter which school they go to. So... Um, the figures are skewed a bit because they don't get the absolute dysfunctional mm. bottom end in the um, in the private schools. And of course, there are public schools, you know, primary schools and high schools in uh, 
fairly well-heeled suburbs. And yeah. uh, presumably the kids that attend them get mm. a decent education. Yeah. So anyway, if you're interested in that topic, there's an article there. And, well, here's another person we should get on the podcast is David Gillespie, mm. who's done uh, Free Schools and who also did a book on sugar. He's a really interesting guy. He's mm. um, examined the Has dangers of sugar. done one on sugar in schools? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's a big topic these days. Do you know, the, the thing about Japan that I really... One of the other things I liked about Japan was that there were virtually no overweight people. It's true. You don't see nearly as many as you, you do here. I, it, I, the only overweight people I saw were obviously tourists. Mm. Um, you know, the normal Japanese, they're just... They're, you do see some are, chubby ones, but you don't see really, really huge ones. Yeah. Waddling down the street, do you? No, I didn't even see chubby ones. Like, I was looking closely. I was thinking, wow, these people are in good shape. Mm. But look, I would predict that that might change over the coming years because, um, you know. I think it's because there's not a lot of sugar in their diet. And, that's and my the portion sizes are. It's uh, increasing. But you think the sugar is in the Japanese diet? Mm, they like their sweets too. But right. I don't know. Portion sizes are much better. That would be a mm. key, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you never saw people walking in the street eating. That's really something that I learned when I was living in Japan. Mm. It's considered extremely impolite yes. and uh, uncivilized to eat while you're walking in the street. Yes. Yes. So, no, you never saw people. And, again, the only person I saw doing it was a tourist. Yes. Um, but, yeah, to actually... So it could be the whole snacking between meals things, which yes. is very common here. Uh, people mm. think that, you know, any time, any, virtually any time, day or night, if their eyes are open and they're yeah. conscious, they're entitled to, to stick something in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Japanese people just don't do it. They, mm. they consider that it's... It's just not what you do, you know. You just yes. don't feed your face twenty-four-seven. Uh, yes. Uh, you know there are meal times, and they, you know, they occasionally have a snack between meals. Yes. But they don't just think that you know any time their eyes are open is a time to stick something in their mouth. Yes, yeah. that could be mm. part of it. I think. Yeah, it's mm. interesting, isn't it? Mm, it is. Anyway, back to the topics at hand. There was a poll released from Ipsos looking at people's attitudes to religion. And two in three Australians think religion does more harm than good in the world. Yeah, I was, I was totally uh, encouraged when I read that, that there are actually people out there who more or less agree with us on that point. Mm. A lot of people. Mm. So, Were you surprised by that finding? Well, the only country that um, got a higher rating than us was Belgium. And they came in at 68%, mm. yeah. you know, whereas we were at 63 you know. Yeah. I, think it's a, I think it's a good thing because it's just uh, finally the population is waking up to it, that's all. Mm. So. so it was a survey of 17,000 people across 23 countries by polling firm Ipsos, who are a well-known polling firm, and worldwide it found that 49% of respondents across all countries, agreed with the statement, religion does more harm in the world than good. Oh, that's terrific. But in Australia, it was 63%, yeah, and as Scott said, Belgium was the only one with more, and we were level with Germany and Spain. And then it was uh, India, Sweden, Great Britain, France, Canada, blah, blah, blah. Isn't that interesting with, with India? Uh which is stuck there among predominantly European cultural countries. <clears throat> mm. India is up there. And yet India, I think, is widely perceived as a country where religion is celebrated and uh, considered to be, on the whole, beneficial. So there you go. That's, I thought that one was interesting. Yeah. Well, one of the other questions was, my religion defines me as a person. Do you agree or disagree? And the country with the highest number of people who agreed with that statement was India. So that's a bit of a contradiction in a way, isn't it? Well, yes. It's saying that Indians feel that religion defines them as a person. And yet it does 
cause harm. Yes, religion. But the thing about India is that you've got this split between Hindu Hindus and Muslims. And Muslims. Mm. So Plus the other subgroups like the Jains and the Sikhs and the Buddhists. Yeah. The Buddhists are a pretty small minority, I think. But So I think you could have Indians thinking, yes, my religion defines me as a, as a Hindu, for example. Mm. Does religion do more harm than good? They'd be going, well, those damn Muslims are. So. <laughs> that might be it. That might be it. Could be there, the there is quite not, a lot not of their religion, but hostility, uh, yes. apparently, between Muslims and Hindus yes. in India. Yes. As the sort of periodic riots that are, they experience between... Muslims and Hindus uh, would um, would bear out. There we go. So lots of people think that there's problems with religion. Here's one. One in six people worldwide said that they lose respect for people after finding out that they are not religious. But the share of Australians... It's really that high, is it? Yeah, one in six worldwide, but in Australia it was smaller than one in eight would lose respect for people after finding out they're not religious. One in eight. Mm. I'm surprised it's that high in Australia. Mm. Also, in Australia, 25% agreed that religious people make better citizens, which was much lower than America, 45%, Russia, 44%, and India, 62%. As Indians are all over the shop. They are, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Maybe Indians just don't like saying no to the question. <laughs> Who knows what's going on there? Who knows what's going on? While I was away, uh, dear listener, we, um, we got a voicemail message from our friend Raju. And <laughs> language warning, dear listener, and, and taste warning as well. You know, if, if you don't like your comedy blue, <laughs> then don't listen to the next... <laughs> For the next three or four minutes and skip through and come back to us. But good on you, Raju. Uh, he's had something to say. Have a listen to this. I, Raju Singh, give thanks for this wonderful townhouse in Armadale. Ooh, let me see who my neighbour in number 69 is. Mr Barnaby Joyce. I have heard of this good Christian man, this man of family values. Let me listen and see if the great man is at home. Oh, Mr. Joyce, good to see that your Christian and family values are still strong like bull. Oh, Mr. Joyce, I thought you had renounced your New Zealand citizenship. Yes, Mr. Joyce, grab the pussy, grab the pussy. A cock in bed with you, Mr. Joyce? Oh, I guess Matthew 7 1, I should not judge. Oh, but not you too, Ganesh. Oh, Scott, I know with our setup with the phone, I don't think you heard that, but. You've no, I didn't it. hear that. You have heard it before? Did you? No, I haven't heard it. But I'll, I'll, I'll listen to it tomorrow when it comes out on podcast. Sorry about that, Scott. But um, no, it's okay. Yeah, that he's, was amazing. Yeah, he's. I, I think uh, Raju is. He's working overtime on his sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing it's uh, it's legally comedy. I think because yeah. otherwise he would be. Uh, you think he might be because if he's in trouble, we're in. I'm in trouble because yes. as a publisher. Um, what do you think? I think it's all in good Run fun. Run past your solicitor before <laughs> you commit it to the uh, to the world. You know, we're not seriously suggesting no, that of Barnaby not. was having sex with a sheep or an elephant. Of course, it's just a, <laughs> it's just a joke. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's comedy, and comedy is legal in this country. Thank goodness. Yeah. So, um, um, so there we go. That's. Raju Singh, <laughs> he got out of his submarine and uh, somehow, <laughs> somehow found himself um, living next door to Barnaby. I don't know how that works. Mm. Yeah. Finally, when it comes to wackiness and and religion, can we get any wackier? Do you remember the days of the Reverend Moon and the Moonies? Yeah. 
Yeah, was that Korea? Or? It was South Korea, yes. Yeah. Mm. And well, we're showing our age here, aren't we? 12th May. Do you remember the Moonies, Scott? Very, very vaguely. I was mm. quite young when they hit the headlines. Yeah. And I gathered they were from Korea, were they? Yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a cult. And yeah. people joined and they had mass marriage ceremonies where hundreds of couples would marry at the same time in these massive ceremonies. And I think the couples hadn't even met each other before. They were just thrown together by the Reverend Moon. So he has a son, and it's not surprising that his son... Is there something about Korea, you know, north or south, that the, the children just become even greater caricatures of the parents in wackiness? Is it something about Korean I think culture? It's something about cults. Right. I mean, the Reverend so-called Billy Graham's son mm. yeah, that's true. has taken over his empire and is yep. um, making a damn good living out of it. Mm. So it's hardly surprising that other cult children would uh, see a good living in the uh, works of their parents. Mm. Anyway, back to this, the son of um, the late Reverend Sun Myung Moon. Uh, what we've got here is a group in Newfoundland, must be Pennsylvania, PA. Mm, I think so. Mm. Hundreds of crown-wearing worshippers clutching AR-15 rifles drank holy wine and exchanged or renewed wedding vows in a commitment ceremony at a Pennsylvania church on Wednesday, prompting a nearby school to cancel classes. With state police and a smattering of protesters standing watch outside the church, brides clad in white and grooms in dark suits brought dozens of unloaded AR-15s into World Peace and Unification Sanctuary for a religious event that doubled as an advertisement for the Second Amendment. Essentially, when you look at the picture, it's just a bunch of wacky moonies who have got their assault rifles unloaded and with a zip tie on them so that they can't be used, but they're clutching them as they commit themselves to their religious beliefs. And while wearing crazy sorts of golden crowns. And this is happening in the United States of America, Pennsylvania. It's extraordinary, and if you didn't it's see the pictures, totally you wouldn't wacky, believe it. it. But yeah. you would think it was something out of a some sort of strange movie, but it's reality. It's, it's reality in two thousand and eighteen. It's bizarre. Yeah, and you know, it's the the um, what is it called? The World Peace and Unification Church or something? Yes, clutching assault rifles. Um, yep. It's bizarre and bizarre. <laughs> See, this is the thing I find really bizarre about this is that the number of assault rifles that were there. I mean, it, clearly, it must be a very popular weapon for Americans to own mm. that they've got the numbers of them turning up to this church to get blessed. Mm. Well, well, sales of the AR-15 apparently went through the roof after one of those school massacres. Oh, really? Mm. It was actually a an advertising oh, was, bonanza for mm. the manufacturers. Yeah, that was that was when there was a concern that Obama was going to do something That's about the right. AR-15. Yes. Ah, right. So yeah. they went they went through and they went through a whole range of panic buying and that sort yes. of stuff. So. <laughs> panic buying AR-15s, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. We panic buy it's... food and toilet paper. They panic buy AR-15s and ammo. Yeah. I can't ever imagine them adopting Australian gun laws over there. But surely, as a first step, if you could do away with military-style assault weapons, that's got to be a first step for them to take, doesn't it? It's too late. It's a broken system. And you know what? If I lived in a lonely farmhouse in some Nowheresville, USA, I would buy a gun. I, I believe I would too. Trevor, to be honest. Because there's just so honest. many people with guns. Exactly. I, I you would, would feel vulnerable without one. Yeah. Some I, sort of gun, maybe not an AR-15. I'd, I'd have a cabinet to lock it in so that my kids couldn't accidentally shoot each other, but I would, 
with that number of people running around, it's reached the point where I don't want. And look, I've I've spoken to some perfectly reasonable, intelligent Americans mm. who've told me exactly the same thing. That that mm. and and that they think here in Australia that we're you know, we just don't understand what it's like to live in a country with right. so many guns around. And so if they lived here, they'd be quite happy not to have a gun. Is that what I don't saying? know about that. I haven't oh. put it to them. But The thing that I find incredible is that you've got all these AR-15s. These are assault rifles. And that's the thing I find ridiculous is that you've got high-powered rifles which are semi-automatic, and then with a bump stock or whatever the hell it's called that they're talking about outlawing, it can become a machine gun. Mm. You know, now that is absolutely insane. Well, look, Scott, yeah. I put it to you, what would you do if your farmhouse was surrounded by a 100, you know, heavily armed, you know, burglars? Mm. You'd want to be able to take a few down pretty quickly, wouldn't you? Well, that's the whole point, is that if, if, you get, if you're going to be surrounded by a, a heavily armed burglars, I think they're going to get the jump on you, aren't they? Well, Scott, well, okay, Paul. Don't let them get the jump on you. We've already declared that if we, if we lived in a lonely farmhouse in Nowheresville, USA, we would have a gun. I would, think I would. Would you have an AR-15? Not necessarily. Right. I think I'd probably prefer just a handgun, but right. I, don't, I don't know. I'm open to persuasion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of scary thought, isn't it, to think mm. that out there in the general community, uh, what, what do they say, 300 million guns in mm. America or something like that? They say there are... I think, there's, I think there's more guns than there is population. Yeah, it's, it's around... The population's around 320 million, I think, in the USA, something like that. But I've seen figures, I think, of something like 300 million weapons yep. um, at large in the general community. It's a lot mm. of guns. Mm. Even Sam Harris, I know I've read Sam Harris uh, on, on the subject say that he keeps guns at home. Right. But I think he, you know, they're probably handguns. Uh, in a safe place, just right. to protect his family from potential harm, mm. and it's p- completely understandable. I think mm. I wouldn't have one in a city. You I wouldn't, think. but there are a lot of guns in the city too in America. I guess it depends on the city. If I was in San Francisco, no way. But still, a lot of people have guns. Yeah, and if but you're a, a pretty pretty high profile public figure like Sam Harris, I think you'd be probably but, crazy not to have one. But really, are there, are there hordes of people invading the homes of celebrities Look, at gunpoint? Well, no. yes, John Lennon was murdered by a maniac with a gun. Uh, celebrities do tend to attract... Yeah, Ronald Reagan was, was shot That's and he was right. surrounded by Secret exactly. Service who had guns. Yes, so. yes, but... You know, the point being, if you're alone in your home with your family and mm. some maniac or some crazy... Yeah, well, John Lennon wasn't at home alone with his family. Like, he, was, he was just outside his home. Yeah, but the point is, the gun argument to me seems to be valid when you're at home and there's a spate of home invasions by people who are uh, invading your home, but it just doesn't work if you walk in the streets... Like, it's too easy just... You, you can't really defend yourself out on the street with a gun as such. Well, you can, depending on uh, the circumstances. Mm. I don't know. I, I just remember years ago there was a, a debate on television and that sort of thing where there was a, a, a woman who was arguing why she carried a firearm and she said in case she gets raped. Mm. And um, she had it unloaded and... She pulled it out and pointed it at the bloke and said, you know, don't come anywhere near me. And he says, no, no, it's all right. And in a quick, in a very quick movement, the guy disarmed her and turned the gun on her. Yes. So, you know, it's a fallacy to people to believe that they are safer with these weapons. They're actually not safer. They're it probably on, more at risk. It depends on how well trained they are, you know, obviously. And that is most of them are not trained at all. Mm. So I think it's ridiculous that they've got the NRA over there sprouting off saying that you need a firearm to protect yourself. I'm pretty mm. sure someone like Sam Harris would have put himself through some training. 
on how to handle it. Yeah, it's a very different thing, though, when you're confronted with the idea of actually dropping a bloke. You know, you've got you've got to move very quickly and you've got to be able to squeeze the trigger and without regret. And I just don't think that a lot of people can do that. Do you, do you think Sam Harris is taking his gun out with him when he goes to Walmart? Or do you no, think... Right. I doubt it. Yeah. But well, that's what... But I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. Maybe yeah. he does. I really don't know. Mm. But I know I have read him mm. uh, describe having a gun in the home to protect himself and his family and having uh, done some martial arts training. So there you go. He's a, a guy who's preparing himself for whatever eventuality that he could uh, realistically defend himself against. I mean, you can't. There's no guarantees, mm. but uh, there are no guarantees in life anyway, are there? But mm. you, you do what you can. All right, gentlemen, we're probably done. Mm. So, dear listener, a few interesting guests are in the pipeline. So, hoping to get a few religious people, and got one in particular down the Gold Coast who I think is going to come on board and try to get a few different voices and a few contrary voices so that's the aim over the next few weeks so that's it dear listener we'll be back next week or somebody will be back or some of us or who knows what will happen but stay tuned there'll be some sort of podcast episode next week talk to you then thank you very much bye now see you well dear listener did you enjoy that episode of the podcast if you did i've got a favor to ask Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fizz Velvet Glove and subscribe on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you... Get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.